The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. You take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. I've entitled this message this morning, Our Babylonian Hearts. And you'll see why I've entitled it that as we move along in the chapter. But I want to ask you just to follow along with me as I read the first nine verses of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose or propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of of the earth. Father, we pray this morning, God, that as we look at this story, God, of your judgment and disbursement of those individuals that desired to to build a tower, Lord, to really displace you, God. Father, I pray that, Lord, we would be spoken to by the Holy Spirit. God, if there's any way in me that I'm, I'm trying to build a, an edifice in my own life, God, that I would supplant you or want to make me Lord of my life, God, rather than you. Then, Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would speak to me this morning, speak to all of our hearts, asking in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, the Arizona Republic carried this local profile uh, by a columnist, and it was speaking of a guy by the name of Gordon Hall. Gordon Hall was an entrepreneur, and uh, we're going to find out what his demise later. But this is quoting uh, uh, the, the scene that he sees Gordon Hall as he's there in the dusk. Gordon Hall stands at an overlook of his 55,000-square-foot mansion in Paradise Valley. A structure built by Pittsburgh industrialist Walker McCune and now owned and being renovated by Hall. Hall is 32 years old and a millionaire many times over. He stares at the range of light stretching before him from horizon to horizon and breathes a deep, relaxed sigh. The lights of the city are like the campfires of a great army to Hall who sees himself as its benevolent general. They are like the flashlights of the world's fortune seekers, and Hall is their beacon to riches. They are, for Hall, like the stars of the firmament, and he is above them. 
He is worth more than $100 million, he says, because it was his goal to be worth more than $100 million before the age of 33. There are other goals. By the time he is 38, he will become a billionaire. By the time his earthly body expires and he is convinced that he can live to be 120 years old, he will assume what he believes to be his just heavenly reward. Gordon Hall will be God. We always have existed as intelligence, as spirits, he says. We are down here merely to gain a body. As man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God, and I believe it. This is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes, and I believe that I can do anything too. He looks to the horizon, and then he looks behind him where his great dark house seems to drift like a ship in the night. There's more to the story of Gordon Hall. He would become many of those things, but he wouldn't become God. At the age of 61, he was convicted of a scheme where he was embezzling money from others to tell them how to get out of their taxes. Anybody fall into that scheme? On that, he was convicted to 96 months in prison. This is on top of the 180 months he had already been convicted of and sentenced to as a result of a South Carolina Ponzi scheme. If you add the years up at 61, he would have 23 years to serve in prison and undoubtedly would serve out his golden years in prison. But Gordon Hall, really, as I think about that, he is merely an expression of what I would say is in the heart of every human being, and that is what I'm calling a Babylonian heart. Left to ourselves, it's been the nature of humanity to always try to usurp God, to be God himself, to be God of his own life or her own life at the very least. When we look through history and biblical history, we can see that there were others that had this same notion that Gordon Hall had as well. If you'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 30, Daniel writes this, As Nebuchadnezzar strutted around Babylon, he declared, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You remember just after Nebuchadnezzar had spoken that, God judged him, and for the next period of years, he would walk around as a madman with his hair growing long, his fingernails growing long, and eating grass in the field with the cattle. King Herod, we record it's recorded in Acts chapter 12 as, as King Herod was coming out onto the palace 
as he was declaring, making his declaration to the people, the people cried out, the voice of a God and not a man. And the end of Herod at that point was where an angel of God struck him dead. What is it that's similar in both of these two cases? They're both trying to declare their might and their power rather than giving God Almighty the glory. There's a litany of Babylonian hearts in history. We call him Alexander the, hey, we call him Caesar, which means mighty one, Caesar Augustus. It was said of Caesar that when he died, there were many that feared that God had died. Louis XIV, we look back in history, and he was considered to be the sun god. Stalin, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember Stalin, Stalin had encouraged or would encourage the people that if they're ever feeling lowly, if they're ever feeling down, just think of him and their hearts will be lifted up. We have modern day leaders who have followed in the same path, haven't we? We've had politicians, we've had CEOs of corporations, we've had preachers who get to that elevated state and they all make the same mistake that the children of Israel here, after Noah, they make the same mistake where they try to exalt themselves and bring God down rather than giving Him praise. Can I tell you this, and please don't take offense to this, but every single one of us have that little imperial self within us. We have that tendency, and even for a believer, if it's not checked by the Holy Spirit, we all have that tendency to become many potentates, God of our own lives, or, or we've tried to find a place within the church to become a big fish in a little pond, right? To elevate ourselves and to exalt ourselves, our Babylonian hearts, rather than to exalt the Lord Jesus. Can I share with you a story that happened to me recently within the last year or so? And if I share it, will you please not think less of me when I share this? I was telling David just this last week as we were talking, there was, there was a day that I was driving out of the driveway. And it may have been about a year ago, I think, when we finally retired the debt on this property. I can't remember exactly when it was, but, but I was approaching 138 as you go out here and I stop at that intersection. Many of you don't, but I stop there. And I had just driven by this great edifice of a church building and thought about how, now this was pre-COVID, right? <laughs> and, and, and I had a tinge of, look what I am over. The Holy Spirit said, no, 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 knucklehead. He calls me knucklehead every now and then. I don't know what he calls you. But immediately I called and I thought, oh God, don't let me take your glory. Can anybody relate to that story? I share that with you just as an example that every single one of us have that desire to give glory to self rather than glory to God. And that's the incident that we find here in Genesis chapter 11. 
Now the question is, what does God think of man trying to rob him of his glory and exalt self rather than give praise and glory and honor to God? Jeremiah writes as a prophet for God when he says this in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him, bo- let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. In other words, let us boast in this, that, that we have been known by God and now we know God. And in that, we cannot take one iota or one bit of credit for, Amen. You see, it's God who saved us. And he says, if anyone wants to boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The first thing I want us to notice in this passage in Genesis chapter 11 is, is this human arrogance that that we can all fall to, but particularly the arrogance that they had fallen to at that time. You know, arrogance is that, is that sense of superiority. It's that sense of self-importance. It's that sense of uncontrollable pride. You know, it's kind of like the guy that you meet and you say, I'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. You'll find that in the book of Jamo, chapter 1, verse 1. They decided to build this edifice. Let's read the verses again, 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves, underline that word, ourselves, a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, a little bit about the structure first. We really don't know exactly how this structure might have looked. But the most probable location that archaeologists have determined where the Tower of Babel is, is actually in the city of Babylon. They found ruins there of an edifice that they estimated had been about seven stories tall and, and probably a square or rectangular base at the base. And on top of that, seven stories of a tower that would go up and up and up and reach to the heavens. The, the estimation of the size of that at seven stories would have been some 300 feet tall and probably covered the area of about two American football fields. Large structure. And so they had, they had built this structure there, and they built it so that they, des- they desired that they might go up to the heavens. But you see, the purpose of their building was was not just that they might go up to the heavens, but that they might make a name for themselves. 
You see, God had already declared to the people who he was as supreme creator, ruler, and Lord of all, sovereign of all, that man is subject to God. And here they had a desire, about 2,000 of them probably, according to the Genesis record, that they would settle there and they would build a tower so that it might reach up to the heavens to displace God, make themselves God, and there, rather than worshiping God, they would at least at minimum make themselves equal to God and abase God. You see, they had made a God in their own image, in their own mind, that they thought that somehow they might be equal to God. Listen to what Nahum Sarna writes as he writes in his commentary on on the Jewish Torah. He says, rooted in earth with its head lost in the clouds. It was taken to be the meeting point of heaven and earth and as such the natural arena of divine activity. On its heights, the gods were imagined to have their abode, constituting the obvious channel of communication between the celestial and terrestrial spheres. The sacred mountain was looked upon as the center of the universe and the navel of the earth. Now, this is not the only incident in Scripture where these types of edifices had been built by by others who worshipped other gods, and God always, always, always condemned the idea of man trying to supplant God. But from the day that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, man has been trying to supplant or diminish God and be his or her own God. You see, the problem here is not that that maybe they were building a tower so that, that they might get closer to God to worship him as many of the other nations would do after that time. The problem was that they desired to build this tower so that they might destroy, bring down, or abase God. You see, there were some supplications that they made as they built their tower. There were some presumptions that they made. The first thing I want us to recognize and realize is is they had the idea that, that God was a localized God that God was limited in his sphere and that they could determine where God was and where they would ascend to God and limit him and his powers and his ritual. The second thing that they had the assumption of or the supposition of is that they believed that man in his own efforts could reach God by himself. You see, isn't that what all man-made religion is? Every other world religion, every other schism so-called of Christianity is based on a system that says you and I or man can do enough right, can be right enough that we might have presence and favor and relationship with God. But the Bible tells us that in and of ourselves, there's nothing that we can ever do to be in right relationship with God. There's not enough good that I can do. There are not enough social causes that I can get involved in. There are not enough cultural changes that I can make for the good. 
There are not enough church services that I can attend. There's not enough money that I can give. There's not enough reading of my Bible that I can do. There's not enough praying that I can do. There's not enough witnessing that I can do to ever be in right relationship with God. The Bible says that our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. Can I say something to the believer today? That God saved you by His grace in that. Where at one point, perhaps you recognized that there was nothing that you could ever do to be in right relationship with God, and you placed your trust and your faith in Christ, and you know that He saved you. Can I propose this, that there are many Christians that I see live their life still at the foot of the cross. They receive Christ and know it's by grace, faith in Him that they've been saved, but then somehow or another, they think that in order to, to earn merit with God, that there's more good stuff they have to do. You know what the enemy likes to do in that? The enemy likes to cause us to fall into that trap of what I call Christian comparativism. You see, I can find any I can find people around me that don't live the kind of Christian life that I live. And it's easy for me to be steeped in my pride, steeped in my sin, as long as I can find somebody else that doesn't live like I live. Doug, you're the one that I think about in that. That's a joke. And I can always find somebody else that on the outward appearance, it looks to me as though they are living the exemplary Christian life. And on the other hand, just like I can feel elevated and prideful by comparing myself to somebody else's walk, on the other hand, I can be defeated and think that I can never and I just give up because I just can't be like Chad, right? You see what I'm saying? Can I tell you that's one of the greatest devices of the devil in the mind of the believer? So if you're living in one, of those, one or either of those spheres today, can I give you some freedom? That every man stands or falls before his own maker. And if you're in Christ, you have been declared the righteousness of God in Christ. There's absolutely nothing you or I can ever do to add to that position that we are in Christ. We're encouraged and we're exhorted and we have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit to walk out and live out in that righteousness. But not a single one of us here this morning do it completely and perfectly. Give me a big amen on that one. You see, the drive was that they wanted to make a name for themselves. You know, this same drive drives humanity today, doesn't it? Wanting to make a name for ourselves. And can I say this, that whether one is lost or whether one is saved, we can all be driven by this. Why? Because our flesh wants to elevate flesh. Jamo's flesh wants to elevate Jamo. Can I get an amen to that? It's that flesh nature that we wage warfare by the Holy Spirit against. 
And so every single one of us we see in culture today, there are politicians, and everybody knows they'll say an amen to that, right? I did it. We have preachers. <laughs> Many times what we, what we see in, in, in famous preachers or whatever you want to call them, that the bigger the platform is, the greater the temptation for this is. And they get to a place where there's no accountability. I'm sorry to say you've probably read of now post his death, Ravi Zacharias, the things that were going on in his life. And as you examine it and you look at it, what happens is, is that they're tempted by that pride and that power. And they become unchecked in accountability. Can I tell you this? Every single one of us need to have people, and especially you men, we need to have other men that we are in accountable relationships with each other. Otherwise, we can fall to this, and there's no telling where it will lead us into our life. We'll wish we'd never gone down that road. Athletes, performers, actors, CEOs, Wall Street tycoons, in academia, everybody wants a video to go viral. You may have to explain that to others in the congregation today. Let me, everybody wants to see how many likes they got on their last post. It's in us to elevate ourselves. And when we elevate ourselves, it seems as though we forget God. Now, sometimes we throw Christianese on top of that. We have to have a check, and that check is the Holy Spirit of God that resides in us. And thank God for the Holy Spirit that checks us when we see that begin to well up in our lives. You see, on the negative side of that, not only does a man want to have fame, does a man not only want to have, have him, his name recognized, but men are very fearful of anonymity. And I think it may be a thing, too, that as we get older we realize that past the next generation, our name's probably going to be forgotten. How many of you remember your great-grandfather's name? Not many of us. How many remember your great-great-grandfather's name, unless you've done one of those tracking things, you know? You see, we're all just a generation or two away from having our name forgotten. We're fearful of this anonymity, afraid that when we're gone, nobody's going to know who we were. Alan Richardson writes this about this thing of anonymity. I love what he says. He says, this hatred or this fear of anonymity drives men to heroic feats of valor, long hours of drudgery, or it urges them to spectacular acts of shame or of unscrupulous self-preferment. In its worst forms, it tempts to give honor and glory to themselves, which properly belongs to the name of God. Applause, friends, is the greatest affliction 
addiction known to mankind. Let me say that again. Applause is the greatest addiction known to mankind. We've all seen it. That desire to be elevated, that desire to be recognized, that desire to be applauded can cause us to do some of the dumbest things that we will always regret if we keep following that trail. The next point in this is not only that we see man's arrogance, but we see God's awareness. God's aware of all that they're doing. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, at first, we might just think, but but it's kind of painting a picture here for us. That's a part of the whole story. Moses writes this, and the Lord came down signifying that God's place was much higher than this place that they were trying to build a tower to reach him. The the picture there in the original language is, is as if God bent down on his knees and he had to look down because this great edifice that they were building was so tiny compared to the sphere of God that he had to bend down and look at it because it was minuscule in relation to him. You see, they didn't recognize or realize the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the awe of God, thinking in their pride that they could build a tower that would reach him. Listen to what Isaiah says about God and his throne. He says this in verse 22 of chapter 40. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Turn to your neighbor and say, grasshopper. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 2 verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in delusion. You see, it's good for us to bear in mind the splendor and the majesty of God. The moment you or I begin to think that we're something or somebody, now don't misunderstand me, we are somebody to God, amen? The psalmist writes, what is man that you're mindful of him? But the moment we begin to think that that God is something or a person that, that we're able to hold in our hands and observe rather than seeing that, on the other hand, He holds us in His hands and He examines us. We are in danger of a fall. You see, I remember years ago in my Christian life where I, I kind of took the approach of God that that as I was studying Scripture and studying theology and all of these things about God, that God was somehow this object that I could observe. And God said, no, 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 bonehead, it's not that way. I let you know of me what I want to let you know of me, and I am far above that, so unsearchable that you'll never be able to find that. What you know of me is what I have revealed of you, and what you've got to recognize is that you are in my hands. 
And I'm the God that examines the heart. God's answer to this situation, and I'm wrapping up. That means 20 more minutes, but God's answer. In verses 6 to 8. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The first thing we have to recognize is God was not threatened by their potential. God wasn't wringing his hands and saying, oh, no, (laughs) maybe they'll overthrow me. Oh, no, maybe there are things that they're going to devise and things centuries later that they're going to create, and and my rule and my place will be threatened. No, 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 no. What we have to recognize is that God wasn't concerned or threatened by what they might do. God's heart was what man might do to himself left unchecked. Amen? Amen. And so he says, Let's, let us go down because there's no telling what they will devise. Can, can I say that I see this in verse 7 as not necessarily the judgment, although God judged what they did, but it was more that there was mercy and grace in God's judgment. You see, sometimes I have the negative view of God's judgment or God's discipline in my life, but I fail to recognize that those times where God judges, those times where God disciplines, those times when God intervenes, thanks be to God for His grace and His mercy because He knows left to myself, I will mess it all up. Babylon, from this point on, by the way, this is where that that city name, Nimrod, built. It it comes from the place of Babel where God confused the language. Throughout the recorded history in Scripture, Babylon is always a symbol of one who is anti-God or trying to usurp God's authority and his role. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 13, verse 19. He says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrows them. Babylon, known as that great city, and it was. Jeremiah would repeat the same judgments that God was going to bring on Babylon in Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51, that God was going to soon bring judgment there. And we can read in Daniel through chapter 4 the splendor of of Babylon, but also at the same time the hand of God. At that place where God confused the languages, and by the way, that's, that's where we get the disbursement of peoples, nations, and the rest of the chapter. And there are these different languages. 
You see, they were being disobedient to what God had commanded twice, and that was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue all of the earth. And they wanted to huddle in their urban areas, right? To build these great edifices to themselves. And God knew that if He didn't confuse the language, that they would bring about their own demise. And in all of this, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 3, because there was a promise that God gave for the eradication of sin that plagues all of humanity. And here we see again in God's judgment in Babel that if he had not spread them, if he had not confused the language, the hope, when you look through the genealogy, the hope of the Messiah would have been a shutout. God's judgment and God's curse there was a confusion of the language. And here's how great God is. Here's how God restores. You know, you recognize that God is a God of restoration, right? God loves to restore. God loves to bring back broken relationships among ourselves, and God loves to bring back broken relationship that man has with him and has made him his enemy. Zephaniah prophesies this, looking forward to the time to come. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. We see the confusion of languages in Babel. Zephaniah is prophesying that there's going to come a time when God will, in a sense, undo that so that they all might be able to praise the name of the Lord. Now watch this. I love it. On comes the Messiah, part of the fulfillment of this promise by God through Zephaniah. Jesus comes to earth. He's crucified, he's buried, and he's raised again. Then 40 days later, after he tells his disciples, wait right here, don't do anything, just tarry here. 40 days after, he sends the Holy Spirit of God to birth the church where they were all speaking and prophesying and everyone there heard it in their own language. You see, God took what had been broken, his judgment to disperse the people, and then his promise to bring it back, not so that we might build a great city, but so that we might be born again and enter in and live in the kingdom of God, which is secured for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not finished yet, though. It's not finished yet. Because we find... That as we continue to move on through the story, and someday coming soon, there is going to be a new city that is brought about where we will worship Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Listen to what John tells us in Revelation chapter 21. He says this, John, as he's prophesying, verse 10, he says, and he carried away, I was carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. There is coming 
coming, a new city. But it's a city that God has ordained, that God has purposed, and that God has planned. And God's plans are always better than our plans. Can you say amen to that? And for those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that in that day, we know with all certainty that we will live and dwell and praise Him forever and ever and ever in all of eternity. John said this in chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Have you trusted in His name? If you've not trusted in His name, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, if you've not trusted in His name, and in His name is what He has done for us, behalf of us, that He might save us from our sins. If you've not trusted in what Christ has done, the only hope that you have is what you might achieve on your own, trying to be a God of your own life, which will come to a very bitter end at the end because all that you've done to accomplish, all that you've done to achieve will be for naught. But for the one that's placed their hope and trust in Christ, they realize that all that we might do in this life adds up to zero in an eternal perspective. Have you trusted Christ? I would speak to the one this morning that is a believer. You know for certain that when you die, you have the hope of all of eternity and you can look forward to that new Jerusalem. I would say to that believer, have you kind of dethroned God from your heart? Is self-seating seated there on the throne, or is Jesus seated on the throne? And in both instances, there's a repentance that's required. The one who's not trusted Christ to be willing to repent and turn from living their life on their own apart from God and turning and surrendering and acknowledging Him as Lord and Master. And from this day forward, God, I'm going to surrender it all to you. For the believer is recognized that the devotion, the heart of God, the, the giving to God, the giving of our lives to God, making Him Lord of our lives, if that's been supplanted, then you need to repent. And this morning say, Father, I confess my sin of making J-Mo the king of my heart, rather than you being the king of my heart. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.